Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Kaveh. Joining me today, I have two special guest hosts. Normally I only have one, but today is a special day. So I've called in reinforcements. We have Dr. Seth Truger, emergency room physician. And uh, we also have Dr. Ryan Marino, emergency room physician and toxicologist. You guys, I am grateful that you have come to join me because we have a, a pretty cool guest today. But I also had some stuff I wanted to chat with you about beforehand. So there is this new bit I'm doing for the show because so many of our episodes are kind of downers and they end on these really depressing notes of like, we're all screwed. I've been trying to end with something a little bit more uplifting. And what I've been asking people to do is tell me like some piece of art or film or music that they have been appreciating recently. And it shares it with other people, myself included. I get to learn about new things. And then I got some questions about like movies that pertain to medicine because of that. And I've gotten some emails about people asking like for what's an accurate depiction of medicine or what movies show medicine in the most realistic light. And that's kind of an interesting topic. And like maybe we'll delve into this more at some point with particular movies. But I thought something we could do is I just sent you guys a list of movies. This is a list of movies on an IMDb page. It, the list is the best movies for doctors and medical students. 110 titles on this list. I kind of want to go over this list of what are supposedly the best movies for doctors and medical students. Do you guys have that list in front of you? Yep. All right. So first of all, number one is Wit. What the hell is that? Looks English. Never heard of it. Going to ignore it. Okay, let's go down the list. Fisher King. Never saw it. Philadelphia. Parts of, yeah. Philadelphia. Okay. I could see that. I mean, it's not like, a, I don't want to call it a medical movie, but you know, it's, it's about HIV. It's important in terms of endearment. I think there was a cancer diagnosis, right? Yeah. yeah. These are not so far really like medically like 
directed movies. Oh, here we go. Six is The Doctor. Have you guys seen that movie? We watched part of it in med school. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think, what this list is about to help demonstrate humanity and from the patient point of view. That's what the doctor's about. He's a jerk doctor who gets sick and that has to deal with like the gown with his butt sticking out and all that other stuff. It's well, I'm hurt like playing like, that one role he plays so well. <laughs> like guy who's too smart for the room and disgruntled yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, I guess kind of that's kind of the opposite of uh, broadcast news, which he's great in. So I don't mean to be mean to him, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, he's playing that archetype so well. Okay. Let's, let's skip down the list a little bit. Cause there's a lot of these movies I've never heard of. Uh, okay. Here. <laughs> okay. Number no. 18. Can we go to number 18? Number 18 is John Q 2002 film with Denzel Washington. Did you, did you guys watch this one? Yep. Yeah, I remember seeing this in the theater on opening night. Oh my god. What, um what were your thoughts? But, wow. Just all the drama. Classic give, Denzel Washington like powerful speech at one point like at two thirds of the movie he gives that powerful speech. Well, can you do you remember what the plot of it was? Um his son needs a heart transplant, but because he has bad insurance, I think he's on some HMO that they make fun of pretty heavily. Uh, <laughs> they won't they won't cover it. So he cuts his own heart out. Oh, well, no, actually, that's that was like so what he does is he takes over a hospital like at gunpoint and he takes like the surgeon who's played by um, God, who's that guy? He's like a far right guy. John, John James Wood, James Wood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. James Wood was in it. He's like the surgeon, right? And he takes all these hostages, and then by the end of it, like everyone's like loving him. And like the end of the movie is like, all right, let's just do it right here. Let's do the surgery right now. And James Wood, the surgeon's like, but I don't, I don't have the 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 measurements, and we don't have the the blood types and everything set up. It's a huge surgery. And then he's like, let's just do it. And then James Wood's like, yeah, okay, let's do it. <laughs> Like they're gonna do this heart transplant with like three people in the room, like one nurse and the surgeon. That's it. I remember thinking that was hilarious. All right, let's see what else is next. Uh Mash is down here, which is great. Yeah, I love the movie. The movie, yeah. I remember seeing that a long time ago. Does that hold up? Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, I mean I think now it has a problem where so many things have hit the same note that it's like, oh, there's just one more like anti-establishment fun guys. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, this is one of the first good ones. Number 26. Did you guys see number 26? It's Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story. Did you know that there was a Ben Carson movie? <laughs> oh, Starring yeah. Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. You watched it? No. Okay, good. Number 36 is High Anxiety. <laughs> The Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> That's a great film. I don't remember there being any, I guess, it's anxiety. Like, it's psychiatry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Dr. Detroit is on this list. <laughs> Shutter Island is on here. I guess that uh, takes place never... in a psychiatric hospital. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Why is The Kingdom on here? 51 is The Kingdom, 2007. That's that. Like the... It's like a terrorism movie. I don't see it. The Island of Dr. Moreau. I'm glad that made it. The grudge, no tombstone. I'm assuming because of Doc Holiday. Alien, actually, fun fact about Alien the guy who wrote it, he had Crohn's disease, Hmm. and that was like his inspiration. Was he's like, he felt like his insides were like so on fire, he felt like something was trying to burst through his body. 
that was like the the impetus supposedly and unfortunately i think he died of of complications due to it but yeah that's that's what i heard about alien you say i was just did james cameron not make he he didn't write it he didn't he wasn't the writer he didn't write okay he did the second one i don't know if he did the first he didn't do the first one he did like the second one with all the army guys in it dr giggles (laughs) outbreak is on here that's a classic all right this list i don't know i don't know if it's a great list what do you guys what do you guys think what's the best that you can think of movie at depicting or what's what's your favorite let me start with that what's your favorite medical movie not tv show i think we're probably all going to agree on that what's your favorite medical movie that's tough i'll probably stick with nash um it's on this classic unpretentious Actually, there's one on this list that I didn't think about before, but I think I'm going to go with. I think I'm going to go with Doc Hollywood because I actually remember like parts of that stuck with me, like how grumpy the old family practice doctor was and how annoyed he was with like the the young doctor coming in and trying to like uh, take over his practice and, or, or judging his practice. The, the relationship he had with his patients, that, that actually... I think that holds up. I mean, I have to watch it again. I watched it well before I was anywhere in medicine, but um, I do think I do think that one got it. Although at the end, I think he forgoes his whole plastic surgery, like <laughs> residency, to become a family practice doc, which seems really unlikely uh, for many many reasons. And he probably wouldn't have done that even if he could, just because he probably wouldn't be great at it. But like, uh, I think outside from that, that that holds up pretty well. Well, I thought of a movie. Yeah. Um, Contagion. I know we're trying to think of like positive mm-hmm. things, but the movie Contagion in a post 2020 world uh, really holds up very well. If anyone hasn't watched it in the past year and a half, I, w- I would recommend that. And the the good part is Gwyneth Paltrow dies very quickly. <laughs> I'm just gonna say hard now. I'm not rewatching it now. Like maybe five years from now. Yeah, I feel it's too soon for me. I can't. I can't do it. I feel like we're living it. I don't want to. I don't need to see it. Is there a happy ending to that movie? Hmm. Kind of. No. No, it's all is it do they find a cure for the for the thing? I think the I think, pandemic ends, but yeah, the pandemic funny. ends, but at what cost? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's gonna be funny to see like what movies are like after this, because the whole premise of all these movies is they find a cure and that's the answer. Like here in our situation, we don't have a cure per se, but we have a vaccine. We don't have a cure the mainstream media will let us use. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, other the, than ivermectin, I mean, we don't have a cure. You for know? the non-medical people listening, we're joking. <laughs> yeah. Seth's one of those ivory tower folks who's suppressing the the science. Actively. <laughs> That's sarcasm. Yeah. Um, Scrubs is a really, I feel, yeah. accurate medical show, though. Hands on. I agree. I think we all, I think we're part two reasons. We're of that scrub generation. Like we probably all watched it like in medical school or residency or some part of our training. And then like, yeah, the medicine itself is not like amazing, but they actually skim over most of it. So they don't make a lot of mistakes by not doing medicine. Exactly. But they get the, they get the pathos, right. You know, Mm -hmm. they get like the weird, like being on call you're there late at night what that's like they get that fatigue the guilt you feel the the all those emotions that come with with residency that they i think they nailed that really well yep 
and the complex like gallows humor and hopefulness and darkness not in, in healthcare and hospital is just yeah. so good yeah 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 it's I just agree. spot on all right well our guest is here so uh let's get to him um guys before i forget can you tell people where to find you or anything you may want to plug this is a good time to plug it um i'm on twitter at ryan marino and seth yeah i'm on twitter at md aware which is a hospital joke <laughs> not like a woke thing not that you're not woke though you're plenty woke oh no uh, I'm, I'm like incredibly woke. Yeah, you're so woke it's very sometimes. awake yeah yeah <laughs> all right all right if you haven't already please uh subscribe to the show you probably already have if you're listening rate and review at itunes follow us at the house of pod on twitter stay tuned we're going to talk to the creative mind behind the uh twitter account for steakums if you don't know what that's all about we'll explain why that's sort of a cool thing in just a moment we have nathan alabak coming up next stay tuned Welcome back today. We have a guest we're all very excited to have on. We have Nathan Alabach, the creative director of Alabach Communications. He is a writer, a podcaster, I believe, and the mind behind the very well-informed, myth-debunking, science-promoting, and very funny Twitter account uh, for Steakums. So as of this recording, I think you have about 227,000 followers, which is, I think, a pretty remarkable amount for a frozen meat company to have on Twitter. For those of you who aren't on Twitter, one of the more interesting things to come out of the social media world in the last couple of years is this social media account for a frozen sheets of meat company becoming what I think is really a guiding voice during the pandemic, addressing things like misinformation, partisan politics, and how that informs medical choices, um, talking about conspiracies, really a really interesting, very smart um, and fun Twitter account to follow, social media account to follow. So Nathan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kaveh. So uh, let's just start with a little bit of your background. Like, I mean, you write about science really well. What is your your background, your training, all that stuff? I, I tell people I have no training. I'm a liberal studies major, uh, autodidact, I guess, maybe in part where some of my background comes from with this stuff is I did grow up pretty surrounded by conspiracy theory culture and um, in various forms. Like I was, a, I grew up in a pretty heavily religious community, um, one that in part uh, kind of like delved into some of the more evangelical right-wing conspiracy theories that have kind of perpetrated U.S. culture or existed in U.S. culture for the past few decades. And um even long after that, my teen years and my young adult years, I was even into like, uh, I don't know, like shows like Ancient Aliens and going down YouTube rabbit holes. And I was just always kind of, I was always had that mind just kind of like what's out there and like mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of mindset of there's like this elite somewhere, you know, controlling things. And I don't know, I was always kind of like, I guess growing up, I never really took it that seriously from a political angle. It didn't feel ideological to me. It just felt mm -hmm. like a kind of fun 
curiosity, um, I don't know, hobby, I guess you'd say. And then I guess as I got older and I started to see more of the political ramifications of that, started to think through a lot of it, um, you know, diversifying, whether it was friends groups or interests, just started to learn more about uh, a lot of the origins of where some of this stuff comes from and just changed. I changed ideologically. And I think that helped me kind of give me more perspective, inspired me to like, want to think more critically about that and like, and how to navigate learning about things. It's like, you learn something, you feel like you got it all figured out. You start to reinforce your biases and then something suddenly drops on you and you not, now it, it shatters everything you thought you knew. So then you kind of have to start over. And after doing that a couple of times, it just, uh, you know, it started clicking like, okay, man, there's, there seems to be like a formula to, to learning through this stuff. And it's not great to just jump from ideological camp to ideological camp. So that's like where my interest came from with all this, uh, professionally prior to getting into social media and marketing, uh, I was just a musician. I've worked in just various random fields. I always had jobs like landscaping and construction and, I don't know, maintenance type stuff. And I would do music as a kind of side gig, trying to make it while I was working. And then I fell into uh, to advertising as part of family business about seven years ago, took it as kind of like a one another one of these side things, like, hey, I'll figure out what um, I'm trying to do with my life in my early 20s and uh, feeling pretty directionless. And eventually it led to this whole stakeum phenomenon that kind of just ended up defining and taking over my life you talk about how you went through this process. It feels like um, a lot of people don't make that evolution. I, I mean, evolution is probably not the right word for this. It sounds a little bit more judgmental than it should, but fuck it. Uh, this evolution, how did you, what happened? to? What was it that started to shift it for you? Was it just reading more, being more educated? Was it just age? Was it exposure to new things? What What was it that caused that shift for you? Well, I think the, the shifts for me just or honestly organically happened, like I kind of alluded to throughout various periods of my life. I mean, there were some periods where I started to hang out with just certain friends and was exposed to different ideas and that, that had a heavy influence on me. Um, there was one, I, I don't need to get too deep into it, but there was one like traumatic event that I did have that kind of uh, reshaped my, my sort of uh, mentality and my whole life really. Um, in 2012, I I was on a, a cruise with my boss's, my then boss's family. Um, it was kind of like a strange happenstance. The first time I had ever been on a cruise, haven't been on one since. And uh, it was a, just, you know, a couple, couple of days of having fun, just drinking and partying with random people I met on this place and uh, ended up having like this series of panic attacks toward the end of this thing. And I'd never experienced panic attacks or anxiety or really, I mean, everybody says they're depressed. I didn't, hadn't experienced depression on a clinical level uh, prior to this in any serious way. So ended up having this like massive traumatic event on this thing, ended up uh, losing a bunch of weight, had to drop out of school I was attending, had to quit my job, ended up breaking up with my girlfriend. Just this kind of like yeah. really bizarre uh, moment in time that felt world ending at the time. I think I was maybe 20 years old when this happened. So, yeah. um, so yeah, that, that definitely, when I came out of that, I think that really forced me because I was constantly in this sort of state of feeling like I was dying and going through this like existential crisis. So I think that did encourage me to start thinking deeper about why I thought the things I thought. And, mm -hmm. uh, that, that was one major defining moment, but even coming out of that, I've had several shifts since then. So it's just, I'm, I'm an all over the place person. I don't know what else to tell you. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I'm sorry that happened to you, but it sounds like you came through that as well as someone possibly can. And it, the fact that it gave you some insight into yourself, it's like, I mean, that's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, I probably would have been a worse person if I hadn't gone through it. But it's, it does sound, yeah, it's always weird to talk about because you don't ever want to wish something like that on anybody. But at the same time, for certain people, I think, you know, experiencing some types of loss, as much as it can lead you down the worst path, it can also rearrange your life in a, in a good way. So I lucked out there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of kind of those like conspiracy theories and, and coming from these places, I don't think that's uncommon and probably everyone or most people at this point know, at least know somebody who has conspiracy theories, if not has it like close, close in their life. Um, what do you think about like what, what's going on in the world right now in terms of kind of that background? Yeah, I mean, I think even just using the example I just brought up, man, it was super easy for me coming out of that one specific traumatic experience to want to cling to some kind of certainty. It's like when, when anytime you're in kind of any environment where there's chaos and, and you know, you feel whether it's loss of a loved one or you just lost your job or like you're just feeling tumultuous experience and anxiety, whatever it might be, you know, people it's like you're grasping, you know, it's like you're drowning, you know, and you're like, you're grasping up, looking for a hand to grab you back or like looking for air. And, um, some people, you know, you fall into exercise, you might fall into some kind of wellness program or, <laughs> or maybe you find like a good group of friends, or maybe you end up becoming religious or something like that. But I guess, um, yeah, I mean, you look at the state of the world today and broadly speaking, obviously we're in a chaotic time and it's no, coincidence that since COVID emerged last year that we're seeing these, I don't want to call it's hard to say unprecedented spikes, but I guess it feels unprecedented because of the sort of landscape of information online. Like we're all so honed in to what's happening on a cultural level that we're seeing it. I and mean, I'm sure comparable things have happened during, you know, the first red scare and JFK's assassination. And there's different events historically that I'm sure have uh, riled up or even nine 11, you know, that have riled up comparable, uh, cultural attitudes and, and distrust, but it is definitely right now, you know, we're in a period where it, distrust feels like it's at an all-time high. And it seems like some of the data bears that out as well with national polling. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's ripe for people to get into conspiracy theories and, and fall down all sorts of rabbit holes. So, you know, at the top of the show, I was tempted to try and find some tweet or one or two tweets of yours that I could read out that would give people a sense of like what your thing is but the truth of it is like your your best tweets are like very long thought out <laughs> threads it's not something i can read online it's something i want people to read actually because you you talk about science you talk about analyzing uh, information media literacy you talk about the stuff in, in in a very sort of thoughtful way i don't think it is ever intended to be controversial i think it's your authentic voice and that's why it works so well you sound like a human person I do know a lot of other companies have tried this sort of thing. I don't feel like it works quite as well. But I think a question that all of us have is, you know, um, were you, how are you given the freedom to do this? And, <laughs> and, and, have, and have you gotten any pushback or in, ever into any trouble with, you know, your bosses because of this? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's been, I started doing the Stakeham tweets in 2017, about halfway through the year. And um, especially in the beginning, 2017, 2018, there was a lot of pushing up against the sort of uh, loose guardrails that we had established as a brand and uh, as an agency working with the brand. 
And this whole thing, it never would have worked, you know, if we had a strict set of rules in place and expectations, because so much of this, the quote unquote strategy, which it's hard to even call it that just kind of, I guess, became a strategy, but the sort of uh, approach has always been like, how do we push, you know, like what, what brands aren't doing right now? How do we push kind of beyond the scope of expectations that people have for what brands are doing on Twitter specifically? So yeah, in the beginning, you know, there was random occurrences. Most of them didn't have to do with threads early on. Most of it was just kind of topic based. Like I would, I, we had some kind of weird uh, areas in the beginning when, um, if you if you or your audience recalls, in like late 2017, Twitter came under fire because they had verified the uh, the white supremacist, white nationalist Richard Spencer, and then they shut down their whole verification system because it became this like PR nightmare. So we like played into that. I remember at the time, like kind of mocking Twitter and like for verifying Nazis and so on. And that was like a looking back, I'm like, man, that was a spicy thing that we did as a brand that I, I can't <laughs> imagine many brands wanting to touch. Uh, and, and, I, and I wasn't really thinking, like I said, strategically about it. It was just kind of, hey, like this is in the zeitgeist. Let's comment on it. So there were moments like that where we'd kind of touch on certain cultural touch points and then we'd back off them once it felt like, and eh, we might have crossed a line there. Um, but it, it really, I think because of the way this whole thing kind of has gone viral year after year and kind of grown year after year, the the sort of expectations have just kind of had to, had to been had, had to have been shifted over time like there's been threads that we've done that once they've been once they've gone viral everyone internally is kind of like crap crap like let's reconvene let's talk about this let's get on the same page because all of a sudden there's like this influx of media and and we weren't aware we didn't know that that thing was about to go viral so now we have to all kind of get on the same page about it but generally speaking it's just you know it's a process. You know, there's, there's a team of people. We all communicate with each other. And I spend a lot of time, like sometimes weeks refining these threads because like, I'm sure we can get into if you guys want, I mean, they're pretty, they're always pretty basic concepts. Like they're always kind of one-on-one. Here's just kind of like, whether it's a factoid or just a basic media literacy type tip, but it's how to communicate them in a way that you're thinking, I'm trying to think like three steps ahead, you know, what's the reaction to the reaction to this? Like, What's the worst possible outcome? How do I reach the most amount of people? How do I depolarize this topic the best I can? So I do put a lot of thought into them. So by the time they go out, I'm usually pretty confident that, not that they're going to go viral, but that it's, it's relatively safe and not going to damage the brand in any major way. But it's definitely, even like with this Neil deGrasse Tyson thing that if you guys want to touch on, we can, where we kind of started this little Twitter beef with him a few months ago. Even that, like, I was not aware when that happened that that was going to blow up the way it did. And there was a lot of moments internally where we were kind of panicking, like, oh, man, like, what what did we just do? Like, are we about to get a bunch of heat, you know, from people for doing this? Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was very strange. So there's, there's, always, there's always a little bit of uncertainty where we have to kind of navigate that. But in large part, we've just built that trust over years of doing this and years of uh, being successful with it. So it kind of speaks for itself at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask when they brought you in, was it like make us good on social media or was it like, let's do a crazy thing and like you do it? Like it's like absurdist, postmodern, irony, layers of crap that's like so self aware about it too. Like, what was the, their strategy? Like, how much of it was like, let's be crazy? How much of it was like, you do you? Honestly, none of this was there when, it, when, we, when we got brought in for this thing. So we, 
we started working with Steakum in 2015 and in large part, you know, this is boring to, to this type of audience, I'm sure, but like in large part, when you implement a marketing strategy for a given brand, most of what you're doing is like highly refined, tar- like you geo-targeting, targeting in on certain demographics, certain marketing behaviors. You're trying to drive sales to specific stores or like you have like, you have a, like what they call, you know, KPIs and like key performance indicators, like things that you're trying to build out so that you can prove to the client, like this is working, here's, we're meeting our goals, et cetera. Um, so that was like in large part in the beginning, what we were trying to do. It's like, we're trying to build out like a holistic strategy to kind of like, you know, reinvigorate this, this brand that really peaked in like the eighties, you could say, um, just kind of like get new interest for like younger consumers and people that have forgotten about it since then. Yeah. Um, to what the social stuff happened, it was just lar- in large part coincidence and weird timing because in 2017, our agency, we'd run up the annual budget. So we had like, a lot of time in the middle of the year where there was just nothing going on for this brand. And it just so happened to coincide with the fact that we had two other brands that we had, we had just lost as an agency that we had had for years at that point. So I had a bunch of free time and we just, we pitched to the client like, Hey, you have this vacant Twitter account. It had a thousand inactive followers. It wasn't verified. There was just nothing. Like there was no community. There was no one cared about this brand at all on Twitter. And it was, it was just sitting there. And I was like, hey, do you mind if we just start messing around on this thing in our free time and trying to like build on the kind of like loose marketing advertising strategy that we had been doing the past couple of years? So that was the kind of starting point. But this whole personification that we're talking about here didn't really develop until like a year later once there's a bunch of trial and error and just figuring out what what clicked with people you know and you were able to prove to the company that it was working right i mean it sounds like it's i'm assuming it's working or you wouldn't be allowed to keep doing it so what what did you use to prove to them was it sales or was it just internet engagement what what did you use to make your point yeah, it was kind of both of those, I guess. I mean, in the beginning, like I said, so we'd ran up this annual budget that we had when we started on this thing. And then it started to slowly go viral by the end of 2017. It got its first write-up was in HuffPost, I remember, and then Adweek covered it. And then by that January, it hit national news. It was like it was like on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I think. Um, it was a slow news day, I just remember. And we couldn't believe it because we, we basically, we got verified on Twitter this day. We didn't, we weren't aware this was going to happen. It just kind of happened in the morning. And by that afternoon, either the USA Today picked it up and then the Associated Press picked it up and then that got aggregated out everywhere. So we were like trending. On- How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On Twitter, and I just remember thinking, like, holy crap, like, we none of us were prepared for, for something that big. So... That was the first point where we were like, okay, this is actually, there's something here. There's a, there's a there there that we can build on. And um, also because we hadn't been running any digital campaigns in that time period, we could correlate some spikes in sales and some spikes in, in, in various demographic data showing that there was like an interest in the brand for that period. So we built on that for the first year. And then once that was established loosely, then we knew that it, it continued to build, getting more earned media year after year. And the data continued to, to line up year after year. And then since COVID, it's hard to tell because it's frozen food products been flying off the shelves everywhere sure. since right, COVID. Right. So we can't like one-to-one it as easy as easily now. But um, the growth itself, like through social media and earned media yeah. has still compounded. So, yeah. I mean, I grew up on the West Coast. I had never heard of Steakums before this. Yeah, there's um, like no distribution out there. I think it's in yeah. some Walmarts, but it's not, uh, yeah, there's not much. Yeah. So let's let's get back to the and I'm sorry, beef with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um what what's that story? Yeah, so literally this is gonna sound super anticlimactic. A friend messaged me at like 10 30 at night and said, Hey, Neil deGrasse Tyson posted this thing, it's pretty dumb. Maybe you're gonna want to engage with it. I looked at it <laughs> and I, I was literally playing video games on the computer I'm sitting at right now, and I I just remember looking at it and being like yeah, it's a pretty, you know, simplistic tweet. I can see how this would be inflammatory toward a lot of people who are kind of already experiencing distrust and skepticism and experts and institutions. So I did that kind of flippant tweet that just said log off, bro, from Stakeham. Again, not really thinking anything about it. And then it started to really ramp up and I all the notifications were pouring in. And I was like, crap, man, I'm like getting ready to go to bed. And I ended up having to stay up to like 2 a.m. like fielding <laughs> this and just kind of like making sure it didn't run off the rails. And then also adding more context into it to be like, this wasn't just a one-off like me trying say? to be a jerk. What was it that he said that was the... It was, uh, his tweet was, um, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. And I think like just given the timing of it, it's hard for me not to like, he's a marketer, right? I mean, he's, he's a brilliant science communicator and yeah. in large part, you know, I think he's done work that's undeniably beneficial to the discourse, but in other ways, stuff like this to me personally, as a, also as a communicator, I look at it and I'm like, this was just for clicks. Like he knew, like when he posted this, like it's intentionally meant to be inflammatory toward a certain segment of the population to kind of make them feel like, like you know, get them a little riled up and, as for someone like me in my shoes, I'm a marketer. So purely trying to build a brand, you know, increase sales, whatever. I empathize or I sympathize with that to the point where brands like Stakem or whatever, they'll do whatever it takes to increase sales. And it's all about provocation. But for someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, it felt a little bit more like, you know, you're a public figure. I think there's a little bit more responsibility there to be a little more careful with your messaging. And, I, to, and this is just my take, obviously, like p- different people feel differently about this type of thing. Um, cause at some point 
you need some level of provocation to get the attention you need to like reach the right people. So there's kind of like a, in a funny way, there's like a science to it. Yeah. Like figure out that, that kind of yeah. balance, but it was enough for me to kind of be like, this is stupid. Um, and we commented on it and then I had to kind of double back and, and justify it and explain some of that rationale, which I'm not used to doing on the fly. I usually think a lot more about it. So yeah, yeah. it was just a uh, very do bizarre. Think, event. Do you think you would have, taking it that way if it wasn't for your personal background you, you mentioned you come from a place where you looked at science kind of differently and you come from like uh where did you grow up i grew up like right outside philadelphia so you mentioned you grew up in sort of a, a community where that, that they looked at science differently as well was that part of why you responded that way yeah i think so because like i guess just from the people i grew up around i mean i'm still friends with a lot of people i i disagree with ideologically and i know i see them react to this type of stuff pretty consistently and when i saw that i'm just like there's just certain things that i think are unpreventable in science and public health communication that you just kind of sometimes you just have to put a message out that is true and straightforward and has to pierce through it. and if that's going to piss people off it's unavoidable and you just got to do it. But then there's other, other forms of messaging like this where it feels like this is more meant to be marketing. Like it's meant to market a certain, you know, talking point or, or point of view. And I feel like there's a way of doing that that isn't so inflammatory. And perhaps like in hindsight, like it, it was probably an overreaction on my part because I, like I said, I wasn't really thinking about this. <laughs> I was just kind of like an offhanded tweet while I was playing a video game. Um, so I had to kind of like then defend the position of the brand once it was out there. But I do think in large part, yeah, like for some, from someone in my shoes, you know, seeing different ideological groups interact like that, I, I like to depolarize when I can. And I think for someone in his shoes, that should in part be his job, which I don't think he does uh, well at times. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, there's a lot about this that I really enjoy because I think there's there's two problematic things about this tweet in addition to what you cover. One is like this really feeds into, I think, the I don't know, um, right side of the political spectrum is like liberals and scientists or academics and patronizing look down on you. And like this is just like bow tie professor man saying you're dumb. Right. So it feeds into that, which is terrible. Um, Two is from public health point of view, like science, public health science only works if we do it. So like, sure, vaccines are great. They don't work if they if you don't take them. So like your actions and your beliefs like impact how the science works, right? So it's not just, hey, vaccines work. We're now all vaccinated. You have to get people to get vaccinated. Um, and three, and this is my personal silly part that resonated here is a couple of years ago, um, my first like celebrity interaction on Twitter was I pushed back on Mark Cuban when he was talking about some like BS, like, I don't know, if you're wealthy enough, get random tests all the time. And like, it was terrible because it was like 11 o'clock at night. I needed to work early in the morning. I was like trying to work my sleep hygiene, not just social media at night. And I was like, I gotta stop this. I need to go to bed, but this is like the best thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think um, I agree with all those points. And I think especially in the sort of backdrop of, of, of COVID, just seeing like like how public guidelines have shifted over masks, like and especially early on in the pandemic, like something mm -hmm. like that, which has obviously become hyper partisan and politicized in large part due to the Trump administration's handling of it. But I think in, in, in that being kind of like out of a lot of public health officials control, you then have to figure out how do you 
fix this message in them? Like, how do you yeah. position yourself and, and your, your sort of, uh, like you said, the, the sort of, um, the field, you know, of, whether it's of medical experts or scientists, how do you position these people in a way where you're not, like you mentioned, you're not this kind of elitist kind of looking down on you type of thing, because you have to be humble at a certain point, especially when things are so chaotic that there is going to be change in science and you are going to be improving upon the, you know, past mistakes and past studies. And I think that, that being the backdrop of like what we're, we're looking at right now, it just felt like, that tweet was just like a, a slap in the face for all those people who already feel isolated and politicized. And they've already been been fed propaganda for the past like year plus, and it doesn't do anything to bring them closer to to whatever your message is. And that's, mm-hmm. it definitely, it works as a, as a provocation, but in terms of like getting them to, to see your side on things, I think it was a huge miss. So, yeah. yeah. And I think what's also interesting is you bring up some of the issues with social media. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson is like a, a brilliant scientist, as, as you said. But uh, when when he tweets, it seems more about kind of getting getting the clicks, getting the likes, getting the retweets and the like short provocative things that have zero nuance do not kind of like gain anyone who's not already in, in his corner is kind of one of one of the bigger problems. And what you said before too is when you tweet, you kind of think of like the the craziest things, and that is interesting to me because on social media you can say like I'm a company that sells beef, and you already know that people are going to be like animals are are being murdered or like beef is beef is the reason for global warming, and you can think of like the top top five complaints off the top of your head before you've even sent the tweet, and it has nothing to do with what you're saying. Um, but people are kind of just in their, their like blinders, blinders on atmosphere. Um, you have 280 characters and, and nothing else. And I think, I think Kave touched on this toward the beginning too, in terms of, you know, why people even care in the first place about what Stakem is saying in any of this. I think it, it, in part, it is because not just the absurdist nature of the brand kind of juxta, juxtaposed with the messaging, but also the fact that when they see something like this coming from a brand, they know not only because we're saying it, but I think implicitly people know that this this entity is just trying to sell them something. So there's not like a hidden sort of like ideological motivation, even though there is obviously, obviously there's a point of view behind these posts, but it feels to them like more neutral than if this was coming from a public health official or a politician or, or what have you. And I think in large part, that's why, the, especially since COVID, this accounts exploded because people are so used to seeing on Twitter and on everywhere on social media, ex pundits and journalists kind of telling them what to think and how to feel about the current state of things. And in many cases, if not most cases, it might be with good intentions, but the information gets jumbled and there's, there's ideological biases kind of entwined in all of that. So when you see it coming from a brand like that, it just feels like in a way free of a lot of that, even though, like I said, obviously the biases still exist, but it's still, it's not like it's coming from a certain institute or like a certain, uh, you know, perspective that is trying to do something other than increase sales. So there's something about the messenger in that way, which is a sad commentary on the state of things. Just the fact that like people are willing to hear these messages from a frozen meat company over public health officials and over scientists. (laughs) I think that's unfortunate, but it's, it's, uh, 
it, it's I think, but I think that that alone should be enough to pause for contemplation for a lot of people, a lot of public figures. Right. To be like, how can we kind of like readapt and readdress, you know, some of the problems that we've faced in this communication? You, as a communicator, I think you do a special sort of job at finding this balance between humor and science and really depressing truths. All the while, you keep it really self-deprecating about the fact that you're, you know, corporate shill. You know, I think you do an excellent job of that. You know, no one, it's hard to find that. Even if you weren't doing Steakums, I think your, you know, your voice is, like I said, really authentic. It's really, I think it's out there for sure. Um, how do you think as communicators, we could do better as doctors? How could we do better, a better job of communicating science? I mean, clearly the Neil deGrasse Tyson point, uh, this issue points out something, you know, it's hard for us at this point to not be angry for us to not come across as upset. And I'm actually, I'm okay with that with doctors expressing that. I think if doctors can't express their frustration, if they can't talk about how upset they are, I mean, I think we're going to have a real big crisis in our hands. We already do in terms of burnout. I mean, we're at, we're at a breaking point. Most doctors are, especially ER doctors like these guys and ICU docs and hospitalists. But at the same time, it's not really going to help us. It's not really going to help us reach out to other people so what can we do as doctors? What advice do you have for us? I, I think at the core, you have to kind of continually reevaluate the bad incentives that social media and just platforms in general push, you know, the, the things for you to talk about and, the, and things for you to cover and the way you talk about things. Because I think um, what you just said, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with experts, you know, kind of expressing grief or frustration at, at a given you know, whether it's part of the system or, or bad actors or whatever it might be. Um, but I think the sort of ivory tower um, elitism that, or at least the, that perspective of that, that, that kind of gloom, like looms over a lot of, uh, of these fields. I think the way to overcome that in large part is, is all in tone. I mean, it really is like, I don't know how to prescribe i don't think there's a solution at least in top of my head to prescribe on like a mass media level it's, it's it's sort of like kirby misinformation it's like how do you we can all talk about individual solutions and you know fact checking and building relationships with people but how do you prescribe something on like a policy level that that fixes this stuff i don't i don't know the answer to that but um in terms of individually i think a lot of it's just in the language and how we talk about things and i think a lot of people want to see more like acknowledgement of past mistakes. They want to see more acknowledgement of biases and sort of acknowledgement of whether it's conflicts of interest or whatever. Like they just want to see the sort, I think the side of things that they're so, you know, there's like all these talking points and there's all these historical examples that people point to, whether it's the replication crisis or, you know, the way, uh, like what was that in like 2009, there was like that leak of, of certain climate scientist emails or something like that. I forget, forget what that was exactly, yeah. but there's all these examples that have either been public scandals or like findings that have kind of chipped away at, at, at public trust in these institutions and experts. And I think to rebuild that a huge part of the problem is acknowledging the problem. And even if it's not, you know, you don't got to like, torture yourself or you know for being like oh we're the worst we did all this stuff wrong it's not about that i think it's more just about integrating a kind of self-aware and self-critical uh form of communication into your kind of daily way of, of talking about these things mm -hmm. because when you get into the habit of just like you have to do these things like you need to you need to be better or that's the kind of like 
sort of like liberal uh, like meme is like, you know, we need to be better. And it's this kind of like attitude that I think a lot of people gets very sick of very fast because it feels like, well, everybody's trying. And then at a certain point when it's not enough, a lot of people just check out and they're like, I don't care anymore. I'm out like this. This isn't relevant to me. Um, so I think it's all about communication and just figuring out how do you be more unified in your language and knowing, like I said earlier, I mean, there's obviously points where you can't beat around the bush, like certain things don't require nuance and you're just going to have to put the straight <laughs> messaging out there. But when you have those moments to kind of fill in the gaps and, uh, be a little bit more empathetic and a little bit more, you know, self-aware to, to some of these problems that do exist within um, the, these various fields. I think that's really important to kind of gaining some of that trust back. Cause I, I think that's at least that's what they say. And I think in, in large part, some of it's just a political facade. Some of them will say it's like with the FDA approval, like a lot of people will say like, once it's FDA approved, I'll get the vaccine and then it happens and there's like a, a goalpost moved and yeah. you never really get, there's certain people you'll never get through on that yeah. level. But I do think there's something to, to acknowledge in those problems to at least get in the door with some amount of people. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's, it's something we're grappling with every day. I think your account does. Um, it's a, it's a good guide for us in, in many ways in that sense. And I appreciate that. In some uh, ways it's condescending though. I will say that like, it's, it's, it's funny because it's a beef brand, but I think if I were to post personally, a lot of the stuff that is through stake or if any of you were to, it would come across a little preachy, even though it is self-aware. It's like, there's, there's definitely, you know, a to each their own, you know, from, from wherever your perspective is, you have to kind of shift yeah. the voice a little bit, but, but yeah. Right. It's, yeah. To, I mean, so I like, give lectures and stuff about bias but i think it is really cool to talk about bias as like a beef brand you you can say things that i can't say as a person like oh you're you have no self-awareness of your bias um we're, we're all people who have horrible biases but uh when when you talk about it um i mean you do a better job of communicating than than i do about bias but uh it is also interesting coming from a beef brand to give that kind of like self-awareness and like oh come on people you you got to be better than than a, a beef brand here yeah it's a little tongue-in-cheek so like there's, there's that there's that advantage to it that a lot of uh normal human beings like myself even don't have and, and well <laughs> but it's that self-deprecating humor where you acknowledge that that's a big part of why it works and that's something we can still do in medicine and mm -hmm. and we i think the three of us here at least uh, try i mean we try not to get ahead of ourselves we make fun of each other all the time the three of us and that's a big part of it like we are constantly giving each other shit for that purpose and we we try to call ourselves out on stuff too but it's also part of like a doctor's training where you do build up this bit of ego and that's sort of inevitable too and we have to constantly be aware of that i think that's something we're actively always dealing with <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah you all seem very personable and that is like super important and uh i think honestly like maybe above any any other group for for all their flaws especially in the COVID era i think comedians are some of the best examples of that of just like how do you connect to an audience because like a lot of comedians actually do kind of come from the extreme positions of wealth and elitism in society and yet they're able to kind of connect on that more blue collar working class level and i think a lot of that comes from this like ability to poke jabs and self-deprecate and and you know talk about things in a way that sounds relatable, even if they're coming at it from a perspective that is a little elevated from the average person. So that's yeah. Yeah, something to think about. Yeah. So uh, let me shift gears a little bit uh, and then we'll 
close out. I think after this, let you go. I appreciate your time. Um, so you, you've written a lot about conspiracy theories and you've written a lot about media literacy. Uh, just in general, what do you think social media sites can be doing to be more proactive? It feels like we're being very there. Sometimes they'll react in the right way. Sometimes they'll take someone down. How can they be more proactive? Should they be more proactive in addressing some of the, the far dangerous conspiracy theories and misinformation? I, I wish I had a good, I mean, this is like the, you know, the billion dollar question, quite literally. And I, I wish I had a good answer for it. I feel like um, I get asked it a lot. I'm sure you all get asked it a lot. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, a, I think ultimately the last answer I gave when someone asked me this was at, at a policy level, there has to be some form of legislation passed that I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a regulation of platforms. I don't know if it's like, some addendum to the existing TOS that that enforces like a um like a, like more punishment for this type of thing mm -hmm. like similar to I'm sure you're familiar with with YouTube system which is like a free strike rule essentially so if your channel breaks TOS and, and spreads some severe disinformation or whatever you'll get a strike and then if you get three strikes your channel is like permanently removed and you have to in a lot of cases unless you're like a like a celebrity you, you'll never get a chance to appeal that. And obviously, you know, YouTubers, people that exist on that platform will be the first to tell you that this system is extremely flawed, extremely clunky. So many people get their channels struck and removed that didn't deserve it. And there's like no easy way to get to communicate the, the people at YouTube to, to fix it. But I do think that sort of model, like if it's done well, could be a solution to, to doing some of this stuff. Because I think the big problem is that the rules just aren't enforced in a transparent, consistent way. Like it's just kind of, and obviously part of that is just the nature of the platform. Like you're not going to treat the president of the United States like some anonymous troll. So like there has to be some tipping of the scale <laughs> at a certain point. Unfortunately, yeah, I, I, I get yeah. it's still <laughs> all three of us were like, meh, meh, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could. It's difficult, I think, because it is at that sort of like a high level of politicization at that point where, and it shouldn't be. I mean, I think it should be if, if it was a fair system, it would all be across the board. But because it's clearly tilted in a way with yeah. pub, any kind of public figures, because you have access, like celebrities, anyone who has a name for themselves, like you have access to kind of cheat the system, um, just like with, a, you know, people that do with taxes or whatever. It's like the more money you get, the easier it is. You figure out loopholes and all that. Yeah. So I think um, that ideally there would be some kind of way to keep people more accountable at, the, at that level. But rolling something like that out just seems like such a nightmare. And I yeah. don't know if ultimately it would make it a better. I don't know if it would improve social media. I, I feel like misinformation, whatever, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, I think is a, a problem that was always going to happen with with the Internet. I mean, it was yeah. and now we're just seeing it in its most centralized, dangerous form in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't know if cracking down in any of these ways will ultimately solve the problem because we're always going to be, even with proactive solutions like that, you're still going to be reactive trying to pick every single you know example of this apart. So it's, it's tough. I don't know. Yeah. And to build on your cynicism, I think now 
you know, we're big enough and there's enough other markets that it kind of becomes a badge of honor. Like Alex Berenson basically right. like just purposely got himself kicked off Twitter, it seems, to like boost his hub stack and go on like the parlor circuit. And, like, you get a book you know, deal from it now. Yeah, exactly. He gets booked out and now he's just like a bigger celebrity in that yeah. ecosystem. And yeah. I don't know. And, yeah, and, and to to clarify for our doctor listeners, TOS is not thoracic outlet syndrome. It's terms <laughs> of service. Just I got to make sure that's clear. Okay. <laughs> Even for the people not trying to self promote, I mean, this is probably not not news to anyone. But like the Wall Street Journal has been doing this expose on Facebook, and this is this is all very intentional. Like uh, the, these platforms recognized very early on that bad bad things are better for them than than mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. honesty and that that kind of thing yeah 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 it's all baked into the model and that's that's like it's it, how do you without that's what i kind of at the beginning mentioned some whether it's regulation or some kind of intervention i don't know how else you curb a market like this because it is straight up you know built into how they make money and how they increase their their user base and and the time that people spend on those platforms so it's I don't know. The incentives are all bad, essentially. So I, I don't know how you to reverse that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we should close out here. We've taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a real joy to get you on. This is really fun for us. Um, can you please plug anything and everything that you deem worthy of plugging? Oh no, it's it's uh totally my my pleasure. The big fans of you, I was listening to the show a little bit this past week. Um, super cool work that you're all oh, doing. Um, I'm I'm just a guy. I mean, my name's Nathan Alabach. I mean, my name I'm sure will be in the show notes, and you can search it wherever. I got posts on Medium. Uh, I spend most of my time on Twitter. Um, but but yeah, I I don't know. I got I got a podcast that I maybe do once every few months. That's uh you centered around marketing and philosophy and, and all the topics that and, and misinfo stuff that we're talking about here. So um, you can check that out. It's called what's really good with Nathan Allabach. But other than that, I mean, yeah, just, just hit me up on, on Twitter. I'm pretty accessible if anyone has any questions or whatever. And, and you downplayed that medium, but it's Nathan Allabach, uh, dot medium com, And it's really good. It's got a lot of great writing in there. So I, I do I appreciate recommend it. I do recommend you guys checking that out as well. Um, follow Ryan at Ryan Marino. I should know this by now. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> and follow Seth at MD Aware and follow us at the House of Pod. All of us are on Twitter. And thank you to Nadim for help with production. Um, thank you all for being here. This is super fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. Yeah. Great work. Keep it up. Do you know I learned the story of where they think mermaids came from? Seals. I, I heard manatees. Yeah, some like seals. Yeah, I know, yeah. but manatees did not like that. Manatees have like a have. I could see manatees more than seals. But at the point is, seals like to lay out on rocks. Yeah, seals do like to lay out on rocks. I like <laughs> it's a little sexier. <laughs> the resident isn't on this list. Wait, don't, don't give it away. I haven't looked at everything yet. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. And
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.